So my son asked me the other day, or actually it was a while back, he asked me, Dad, he said, What's the, what in your opinion is the greatest movie of all time? And um, I don't know much about movies before the 80s, but my favorite movie that I've ever watched is called Shawshank Redemption. Um, it's a movie about two men. They meet in prison. They become friends. They stay in prison together for decades. <clears throat> One of them gets out. His name's Andy. He gets out. He writes a letter to Red, who is his friend, who's still in prison, who has given up hope. And he writes to Red at the end of his letter. <clears throat> excuse me. He says this. He says, Red, never forget that hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and a good thing never dies. Love that quote, that hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and a good thing never dies. Well, that's what the scripture is going to show us today, is that as believers, the Lord never promises you that you're not going to go through trials, but what he does promise you is that a believer, you will never go through trials without hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Now keep in mind, Peter is writing a group of suffering people. He's writing a group of people that are being persecuted, they're suffering, they're going through trials. He's offering them hope in the midst of that trial and suffering and persecution. And so let's watch what he says in verse 6. In verse 6 he says this. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And so Peter writes these Christians, and he says they're being distressed by various trials. Now to get our minds sort of what these people are going through, that Peter says they're distressed by various trials, I want you to look at the word distressed. Because that's kind of key to understanding what these people are experiencing in their lives. That word distress is the Greek word lupeo. It's lupeo, and it has a much deeper meaning than what we typically think about when we say the word distressed. We think we're distressed more often than we're really distressed. For example, if I'm driving down I-45 and I hit nonstop traffic, I can honestly say that I am distressed. Amen? You with me? You ever been there? Or if I go to Chick-fil-A at 1032 and they run out of Chick-fil-A chicken biscuits, I, I'm distressed by that. But at the end of the day, those two things are not that really a big a deal. The word lupeo there carries with it a much deeper meaning. Here's what it means. It carries with the idea that you have an emotional weight on you that you can't shake off. You ever been there before where you're struggling and you have such a weight upon you emotionally that you just can't rid it from your life. It follows you around like a crowd, a cloud. That's what Peter is saying. These people are not just distressed, but he's literally saying that they're depressed. These people aren't just going through grievances, but they are grieved by what they're experiencing in their lives. Now, I'd venture to guess that in a group this size, there are several of you that could raise your hand and say, Matt, I'm, I'm walking through this lupeo grieving right now in my life. You could raise your hand and say, I'm experiencing this weight, this emotional weight on me because of my trial that I can't shake off. Some of you, it's one big thing. It's your job. It's your marriage. It's your finances. It's some sin in your life that you can't shake off. It's, it's an addiction maybe. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your spouse's health. Maybe it's a child that's running from the Lord, and there's this one big thing that's bringing the pay on your life. For others of you, 
And we all go through this at times. It's not one big thing. It's a bunch of little things that stack up. And you could honestly raise your hand today and say, yeah, I'm not doing great. I'm not okay. Well, I want you to listen to what the Scripture says and what Peter says our response should be to this thing, this trial that's causing you grief and suffering. Look at 1 Peter 1, 6 again. Peter says, in this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed or grieved by these various trials. Church, I want you to notice something. It would have been crazy enough, check this out, check out the verse, it would have been crazy enough if Peter said, in the midst of your trials and suffering, you should rejoice. That would have been crazy enough. That's not what he says. He says, in the midst of your trials and your suffering, you are to greatly rejoice. And that's, that's even sort of crazier when you put those two words together, greatly and rejoice, and you put them together in the original language, it carries with it this idea that you're literally jumping for joy. That you jump for joy. He says, if you're going through a trial, you should jump for joy. And I was thinking about it, I was trying to think about the last time in my life that I actually jumped for joy. And it was on December the 1st. 2018. That was the last time I physically jumped for joy. I'll tell you the story. So, I've shared this a little bit this in the past, but when my oldest son was in the sixth grade, he started playing football. He and all of his buddies played for their school, Veritas Academy. Long story, I got roped into being the offensive coordinator of their sixth grade football team. Coached the boys sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Eighth grade, they made it to the championship game, and we lost that championship game, and they were really upset, so was I. And I told them, after the end of that game, they were all crying because they wanted it so bad. And I told them, I said, boys, if you'll stick together and you'll work hard, by the time you're seniors, you're going to win a state championship together. Well, long story short, they worked their tails off. They stuck together. It's their senior year. We made it to the state championship game. We're playing in a Texas high school football state championship game. Hard-fought battle, playing a team from Gainesville, make it to the fourth quarter, going back and forth. Finally, we go ahead, clock runs down to zero, and we win the game. These kids that I've been coaching since before they were in puberty, they did it after hundreds and hundreds of hours of practice of blood, sweat, and tears. We won together a Texas high school football state championship. Now, what do you think I did in that moment when the clock hit zero? Do you think I went, hey, good job, boys. Let's go to Whataburger. Let's go. You think that's what I did? No. I literally, and I'm an old man, but I literally jumped for joy. I have a picture. Somebody caught the moment here. I'm going to show this to you. That's me over there, the fat guy on the right. And um, <laughs> I'm actually jumping right there. You can't tell because <laughs> that's about as high as I can jump. I'm not very athletic, but it's just an incredible moment. You can see kid there on the left, he's jumping for joy. In the Greek, that is literally the word picture that Peter writes. He says that when you're going through trials, when you're grieved by a trial, when you're distressed by suffering, you're walking through persecution, you are to jump for joy like you just won a state championship. And it hit me this week that that's a bold statement. And in one sense, when you even think about it, it's almost pastorally insensitive if you don't really know what he's talking about. I mean, think about it. 
This week and this week alone, I, in the last few days, I, I hung out with an older gentleman in our church. His wife is going through dementia, and he is grieved in his trial. It's breaking his heart. His wife doesn't remember him. Met with a kid this week that's from our church, about 12 years old. He's dying right now of cancer. We don't know how long he has. His family is grieved, like you would not imagine. And yet Peter says, you're walking through that kind of trial, and you're to jump for joy. Now, there's one of two things are true for him to be able to make that kind of statement. There's one of two things going on for him to be able to say that. Number one is that Peter is stark raving mad, or there's actually something out there worthy of our jumping for joy in the midst of suffering and trials. That's what he's writing these people for. He's saying there's something worthy. Last week, we looked at the first four reasons that Peter gives us for why we greatly rejoice in the midst of trial. Number one, he said Jesus calls us to do it. He reminds them, this is not my words. These are Jesus' words. This is Jesus that is saying, hey, you have a reason to rejoice in the midst of trial. Number two, he said rejoice in the midst of trial because this world is not your home. You're passing through this place. You're a stranger here. You're on your way to an eternal home. Number three, you can greatly rejoice in the midst of suffering because God is sovereign. And that at every moment of your life, you can trust that He's working everything for your good and for His glory. And finally, last week, we looked at this, that you can rejoice in the midst of trials and suffering because no matter what you're going through, God is transforming you by the power of the Holy Spirit to look like Jesus Christ which is an amazing thing. And today we're going to look at the final three reasons that Peter gives us why we can rejoice in suffering, and then we're going to be done. Here's number five. He's about to tell us. And if you're taking notes, here's number five, and this is a big one. Number five, we can rejoice in the midst of suffering because Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus rose from the grave. Look at verse three, 1 Peter 1, 3. There said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's our living hope from Peter. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter said, here's what he's saying, guys. He's saying, you're going through a trial and it's ripping your guts out. He says, there's a hope that you can hold on to. There's there's something out there, there's a reality out there that has the power to turn your grief into joy. And here's what it is. The hope is that Jesus Christ is not in His tomb. That's the reality, he says, that Jesus Christ is not in His grave. And if Jesus is still in His grave, and a trial comes in our life, we have zero reason to rejoice, but Jesus Christ is not in His grave. And Peter said, that changes everything about how you face trials in your life. And guys, I was thinking about it. If there's anybody on planet Earth that's qualified to talk about rejoicing in the midst of trials because Jesus rose from his grave, it's Peter. Peter was the guy that over and over again would brag about how he'd never let Jesus down. But on the night before the crucifixion and the day of the crucifixion, Peter was the guy that maybe let Jesus down the most. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He comes to Peter and says, Peter, I want you to pray for me. Spirit's willing, flesh is weak. I need you to pray. What does Peter do? 
falls asleep. Later on, the Roman soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus. And this is, this is our Lord and Savior who over and over again has taught His disciples, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. The Roman soldiers come. What does Peter do? He takes out a sword and lops off one of the Roman soldiers' ears. And Jesus comes and touches his ear and heals him. This is, this is the guy that Jesus looks at and says, before the rooster crows tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, Jesus, that's never going to happen. That'll never happen. Everybody else will. I won't. Yet later on in the evening, Jesus has been, he's been uh, captured. He's being beaten at this point. They're in this courtyard. He's about to go into his trial. Peter's in the crowd. He's kind of lurking behind, doesn't want anybody to see him. Somebody looks at Peter and says, Peter, hey, aren't you the one that hung out with Jesus? And he says, no, I'm not. He denies him. They're like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're the one. I'm pretty sure you're the, you're the guy that hung out with Jesus. And the second time he said, no, I'm not. I don't know the man. Somebody else looks at Jesus or Peter and says, no, no, no. I'm really sure you're the one. Tell us plainly. And then Peter cusses. He curses. He says, blankety blank, blank, blank. I do not know the man. As soon as those words came out of his mouth, the rooster crowed. Don't turn there, but listen in Luke twenty two sixty one, 61. says the Lord, talking about Jesus, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine what that moment would be like? He's just a night, even knows him three times, and he looks up and there's Jesus looking at him. Said the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And look verse 62, watch what Peter does. It says, he went out and he wept bitterly. You know what that phrase wept bitterly means in the Greek? It means he wept bitterly. <laughs> it means he ugly cried. You ever ugly cried? I have. You don't ugly cry when you're sad. You don't ugly cry when you've made a mistake. You ugly cry when your life is absolutely falling apart. And that's what just happened. So Peter takes off. He's in this place of absolute desperation. He's completely ashamed. He's sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. He's let down his best friend. He knows his best friend knows it. So he takes off. He's completely racked with guilt. Jesus comes back to life three days later. Everybody's celebrating. Not Peter. He takes off. He says, you know what? I'm going fishing. Going back to what I know. Goes out, gets in the boat, takes off, fishes all night. No doubt the entire evening he's racked with guilt again. He's replaying in his mind over and over and over again how he messed up over and over again with Jesus. Then one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible, it says the next morning the sun was rising up over the hills there on the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's beautiful. The sun was rising up over the Sea of Galilee. And the scripture says that Peter looked up and he saw Jesus standing there on the beach. This is after the resurrection. Sun was rising. Looks up. Peter saw Jesus standing there on the beach. And in that moment, it hit Peter like a bolt of lightning that when death and darkness and failure had overwhelmed him, there was a man that was standing on the beach that had overwhelmed death and darkness and failure. 
And his name was Jesus. And so it says he took off his coat and he hurled himself into the water. And he swam all the way to the beach. And when he got there, Jesus had cooked him breakfast. And they ate together. And during the course of that meal, Jesus completely forgives him and restores him back to ministry. Now church, Peter learned something on the beach that morning. He learned that it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Christ, if you're his child, you're his son, you're his daughter, if you're a follower of Christ, it does not matter how much you failed. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter how big your trial is, and it doesn't matter how dark your night is, that you can greatly rejoice because Jesus Christ conquered the grave. That is a hope that you carry with you no matter what you do or what you walk through. Jesus Christ is alive. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now look at what he says in verse 4. This is really cool. Jesus Christ raised from the dead, it guarantees us something. In verse 4 he says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so here's the sixth reason why we greatly rejoice in the midst of our trials is because, number six, you and I have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. We have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. And so keep in mind, guys, that Peter's comforting these people that are walking through these trials. He reminds them of the hope they have in the resurrection. And listen to this. Listen, don't miss this. He comforts them by reminding them of what is awaiting for them on the other side of the trial. And isn't it true that you can just about go through anything, listen, if what is waiting for you on the other side of that trial is worth the trial? I mean, an example that I thought of, I'm sure there's a few of them, but one of them I thought about was when you have a baby. I've never had one, but I, I hear it's tough. And so you got a couple that's trying to have kids, they can't have kids, they keep trying, they keep trying, finally the Lord blesses them, they have a child, the doctor or whoever comes to them and says, guess what, congratulations, you are going to have a baby. You're pregnant. In that moment, that woman just learned two things. Number one, that she's going to have a child. Number two, that she is about to walk through nine months of some of the greatest suffering in her entire life. She just learned that she just stepped into a significant amount of suffering. She's going to go through morning sickness. She's going to maybe go through weight gain. She's going to carry around this thing that's inside of her that kicks her and messes up her hormones for nine months. She's going to be uncomfortable, have trouble sleeping. Her legs are going to go numb. She's going to crave weird foods. It's going to be crazy. And then that's arguably the easy part. Because then you get to the end of the nine months... And this baby comes kicking and screaming and forcing its way into the world, which what I hear is one of the most excruciating things a human being can ever feel in regards to pain. And so when a baby comes, it brings with them, before you get the end result, the goal, the, the prize, you've got to walk through a lot of suffering and pain. So, but what happens when that couple hears that they're pregnant? They just learn they're going to walk through incredible suffering. But what do they do? Do they start weeping? Do they cry? Do they 
No, they jump for joy. They greatly rejoice. Even though this woman's about to walk through incredible pain, she knows that what is on the other side of that pain is going to make everything pale in comparison. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Don't turn there, listen. Romans 8.18. I love this verse. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the suffering you're going through right now, listen, there is coming a day where there's going to be a glory that's going to be revealed to you, and it's going to blow away every moment of suffering and trial in your entire life. It's going to be worth it. He's saying endure, keep going, hang in there. There's a glory coming. Peter's saying there's a glory coming. There's an inheritance coming with your name on it, and it's going to overshadow the pain. Now, let's look carefully at what Peter says about why our inheritance is so amazing. Verse 3 again, I'll read this one last quick time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy... It's caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In verse 4, he says to obtain an inheritance. And then he's going to tell us what this inheritance is. He's going to talk about this cool inheritance. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. And will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So Peter says this, this inheritance that's coming, that's going to overshadow every other moment of pain in your life. The first thing he wants you to know is that it's imperishable. And that actually describes what our inheritance is. Now when you think about your rewards in heaven, I don't know if you're like me, but when you think about your rewards in heaven, I have a tendency to think about like the material things that God's going to bless us with in heaven. Sometimes I'll think about the mansions or the streets of gold. And those things are going to be awesome. But when Peter is talking about our inheritance here, he's not so much talking about some sort of physical possession we're going to receive, but he's actually talking about us. He's saying we're going to be imperishable. We're going to be undefiled. And that is so much better news. I want to tell you why and explain to you what does this imperishable thing mean. I want you to listen to me really carefully. This is a deep theological concept. And so hang with me here. What is, he, what is he saying? Well, let's talk about the resurrection. To understand what imperishable means, we've got to look at the resurrection. All right, now, one of, the most, one of the things that most people don't realize is that what makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ unique is not that He died and rose again to life. That's not what makes the resurrection of Jesus unique was that He died and was resurrected. Why do I say that? Because other people have died and been resurrected. In the Old Testament, you had, got, you had an entire army that died and God raised them back to life. In the New Testament, um, widow's son got sick, dies. Jesus resurrected him, came back to life. You see, Lazarus, he, Jesus' friend, he's dead for several days. Jesus comes says, Lazarus, arise, Lazarus got up. And so Jesus was not unique in the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. Now listen carefully. Here's how all those other people that came back to life were different than Jesus. Listen. They all died again. Every one of them died again. Every single one of those people 
who died, was risen back to life, eventually got sick, they grew old, and they died again. Listen carefully. What makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ so unique is that Jesus was the first person in all of history that died, rose from the grave, and then never died again. The first person in history, die, rise from the grave, and then he is alive today. How do I know he's alive today? How do I know he's alive? I just talked to him this morning. He's alive. And that's why the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, watch. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. That's true. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That is a powerful statement. He said, if Jesus Christ has never risen from the grave, then you and I are to be pitied above all men. Because if Jesus Christ is still in His tomb, you and I just wasted our lives. But then in verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And he calls them the first fruits of those who are asleep. So when he calls them first fruits of those who are asleep, he's not, he, he's not saying that Jesus is the first person to die and come back to life. He's saying that Jesus was the first person to die, come back to life, and then from that point live forever. His point is that Jesus rose from the grave imperishable. C.S. Lewis said it this way, listen carefully. So the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of a brand new kind of life. Jesus has forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. Jesus has met, fought, and defeated death. Now everything is different because he has done so. Peter's saying that's your hope. That's your hope. No matter what you're going through, that is your hope. Because Jesus died, he rose from the grave perfectly healthy, perfectly whole, perfectly alive, imperishable. He's saying, just like Jesus, He's the first fruits. You're coming after Him. There's coming a day that you're going to die. You're going to breathe your last. You're going to be absent with the body, present with the Lord. And in that moment, you too will rise. Perfectly whole, perfectly healthy, perfectly alive, and you will also live forever. Imperishable. That's good news, amen? Amen. Peter says, that's your hope. There's coming a day where there's no more cancer. There's coming a day where there's no more pain. There's no more Alzheimer's. No more sadness. No more bad backs. No more wrinkles. No more weight gain. It's all going to be gone. And you and I will be imperishable because of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, real quickly, watch what he says next. Look at verse 4. Because this next part might even be better than the fact that we have an imperishable inheritance coming. In verse 4, he says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter tells us that not only are we going to be imperishable, but he says we're going to be undefiled. 
That's really good news. Because the older I get, church, the longer I'm aware of my need for Jesus. Because the older I get, the more I realize something. That there is something that I hate more than bad backs. My back hurts right now. I have no cartilage in my knees. My knees hurt right now. I'm hungry. I'm ready to go eat. I walk through cancer. There's something that I hate more than bad backs and bad knees and cancer. There's, and, 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 and there's something that I even hate more than death. And you know what it is? It's my sin. I hate it. I hate it. I really did when I was younger. I thought that by now I'd have this whole thing figured out. And I don't. The longer I live, the more I realize that I'm just like the Apostle Paul that says that I, I keep doing what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I, I keep doing, and what I want to do, I can't do, and who will save me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God. For there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Peter's writing these people, and he's telling them because of the resurrection, not only will your body rise again imperishable, but your mind and your heart and your soul is going to rise again undefiled. Which means... That in the moment that you pass away, that in the moment you breathe your last breath, that the moment that you are absent from the body and you're present with the Lord, that will be the first time in your entire existence that you will actually be completely sinless. Yes, at your salvation, every single sin was taken away from you and it was forgiven. You've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, but if you're like me, you're made of flesh. And you keep sinning. Sometimes Scripture says it in 1 John. He who says he's without sin doesn't know the Lord. And so all your sins are completely taken off your record. God looks at you. He doesn't see a sinner. But we're still made of flesh. And what this thing is saying is that you're going to rise from the grave one day. And in that moment, you're going to stand before the Lord. You're going to be completely undefiled. It'll be the first time in your entire existence you'll be able to worship the Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. It'll be the first time in all of your and my existence where we will completely see the Lord and worship the Lord unhindered by any sin. And I think that's going to be really awesome when, when, when that happens on that day. It'll be the greatest joy of all. So here's the final reason. That's number six. Here's number seven. Final reason we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Number seven. If you're in Christ Jesus, it's impossible for you to lose this inheritance. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, if your sin has been forgiven, it's impossible for you to lose your salvation or to lose this inheritance that is yours. You guys ever heard of the phrase, once saved, always saved? That's the idea. It's true. That's the idea that once you've really and truly become a follower of Christ, you've trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior, it's impossible for you to lose that. And this next verse, verse 5, is where we see that. One of the places we see it. Read verse 4 again. He says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now watch what he says next in verse 5. He says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Really quick, everybody look at me. What he just said in verse 4, what Peter tells us is that we can rejoice in suffering because there is an inheritance being kept for us in heaven. But then what he says in verse 5 is that not only is God keeping that inheritance for us, but we are being kept for that inheritance. 
He's saying that you are being guarded. That your salvation is being guarded by God's power. That is, that's a military language. It means you're being shielded. He's saying that your salvation is being kept under protective custody. And so here's the question. If your salvation is being shielded by God and it's being protected under the protective custody of God, if it's being guarded by God's power, how in the world can you lose it? You can't. Now why does that comfort us? Why does that comfort us? Why is that maybe the biggest comfort besides the fact that Jesus is alive today? That when we trust in Him, we can never lose it. That He's got us. He's guarding us. Why? Because what that means is that the world can come and they can take away your home. The world can come and they can take away your freedom. They can take away your rights. They can take away your dignity. But what Peter's screaming from the rooftops is they can take all that stuff away, but they will never take away your eternal inheritance. They can't do it. It's impossible. Because it's being guarded by the Lord to be revealed on the last day. And that's why in verse 6, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. I said this last week, I'm going to say it again, almost done here, a couple minutes, maybe, max, listen. Three kinds of people in the world. Three kinds of people in this room. It's people that just got finished going through a trial. Somebody that's walking through a trial right now. And those of you that are about to go through a trial. It's the only three kinds of people in the whole world. And the way that you respond to that trial is really important. And when you walk through that trial, you're going to respond in one of two ways. One, when you walk into that trial, that trial hits. You're grieving, you're suffering. You're going to respond in fear and in bitterness and in anger. Or, when that trial comes... Because of the hope of Jesus Christ, you're going to respond in joy and peace and confidence. It's going to be one of the two. And it really does come down to whether or not you believe this book. I hold in my hands that we have a reason to greatly rejoice. I'll end with this story. There's a man that's uh, one of the goofiest names I've ever heard. I should name my, my youngest son this name. His name's Polycarp. Polycarp was one of John's disciples, and so John, not the Baptist, but John, the disciple of Christ, followed Jesus, and Polycarp was a guy that John led to the Lord, and Polycarp was 86 years old when this huge suffering that Peter was talking about, this huge persecution came in by the Roman Empire. Polycarp was preaching the gospel, 86, he would not stop. Roman soldiers come to his house one night, they knock on his door, he opens the door. He said, Polycarp, you got to stop preaching about this Jesus or we're going to kill you. So make up your mind what you're going to do. He asked him to sit down. He got him something to drink. He went into his room. Before he did it, he asked permission. He said, do you mind if I go and pray for a few minutes? They said, go ahead. Got him a drink. He goes in. He prays. He comes back out. Looks at the Roman soldiers and says, I, I can't stop preaching. Captured him and brought him out to the public area. They had a place where they tied him up to a stake and they were going to burn him at the stake. 
if he didn't deny Jesus. Before they lit the fire, because they had, or rather Polycarp had been so nice to him, they gave him one more opportunity. They said, Polycarp, deny Christ right now, and we'll let you live. Deny Jesus. We'll untie you. You can live the rest of your life in peace. And what he said was incredible. He looked down at him, and he said, for 86 years, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has not denied me, so I will not deny him now. Light your fire. And they lit the fire, and he worshiped until he went home to be with Jesus. That's the kind of man I want to be. It's the kind of church I want to be. That when trials come, when suffering comes, no matter what comes in my life, we walk through that with a supernatural joy that can only come when we know in the bottom of our hearts that our God is faithful. Let's pray. every head bowed and every eye closed, if if there's never been a time in your life where you've asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, Scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to invite you to do that right now. Just confess that He's Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. For those of you here that are walking through trial, I want you to take just one second. We're about to sing. I want you to just pray that the Lord would give you the strength to endure that trial, to remember you serve a risen King. There's an inheritance waiting for you in glory, imperishable and undefiled. And there's coming a day where all of this will be swept away by the glory of God as you see Him face to face. Holy Spirit, I want to pray right now for those in this room that are walking through a trial just as we speak. God, I know that there's some folks here that they're at that place, they're grieved, and they just like, God, I don't have it in me to jump for joy. Lord, I pray that you would be powerful to them right now. That you would overwhelm their grief with the joy that can only come from you. Supernaturally, God, do that work in them. Let us be a people that praise you no matter what. God, we love you. We honor you. We thank you, God, that we pray and we sing today to a risen Lord. And so it's our privilege to do that now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together. Let's worship Him.